rounds it out in a beautiful way and does bring it to what I think is a cinematic conclusion, a satisfying end. So let's read the first part of John chapter 21. After Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to pull the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, and that little phrase we think is referring to John himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him because he'd taken it off while he was working and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, carrying the net full of fish, but they were not far from shore, about a hundred meters. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals, there was fish on it, and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net to shore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This is now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Gospel of John records seven signs that Jesus did to show us who Jesus was, but we get a bonus sign here. The miraculous catch of fish, 153 big ones. And uh, this, of course, has given us a proverbial saying cast your nets on the other side, have another go, throw your nets out again. And the disciples did that when Jesus told them to, and they caught these 153 big fish. Now, whenever there are Bibles, uh, numbers that appear in the Bible, people start speculating about what those numbers mean. And some numbers biblically really are important and significant. The number seven, the number of signs that are recorded in John's Gospel, seven is an important number biblically. It's the number of perfection. It's the number of the days of the week, days of creation and the day of Sabbath rest. Book of Revelation, when John has a vision there, with the Holy Spirit described as a sevenfold spirit. And interesting, there are seven disciples in this encounter. You can count them. Simon, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two other disciples. So seven disciples in this story. There's something significant about the number seven. But then we have 153 fish, and there's been lots of speculation about what 153 fish might represent. Is there some hidden meaning? Is there an interpretation we're meant to unlock. Does Dan Brown have the answer? Uh, some of the ancient answers are things like this, that the hundred represents the fullness of the church, of all who are going to be saved. That the fifty represent the remnants of the Jewish people who are going to come in, and three represents the Trinity. Or some have speculated that 153 represents all the different fish species there were in the sea, and they caught one of each. I can tell you 
the real answer. There were 153 fish, and they were big. Peter and his friends were fishermen, and fishermen always tell stories about the big fish and the fish that got away. And this time, there are 153 big fish that didn't get away. They counted them, they took the photos, they got them in their album of the year. This was the catch. This was a miracle. This was a happy day. That's what the fish are about. It was a miracle catch. In a sense, though, it's the, it's the very ordinariness of the scene that makes this moment miraculous. Peter says to his mate, Lads, I'm going out fishing. I'm going out fishing. This is, this is just what they do. They're fishermen. What do fishermen do? Go out fishing. And there's a miracle because Jesus turns up and that's just what Jesus does. Jesus just does miracles. And there's a, an ordinariness about this scene almost which makes it somehow feel miraculous. I had a, had a story coming a bit like this this week. A, a friend of mine from where Chris and I used to live, um, in fact, called Nick, uh, who, who in 2010 suddenly developed chronic fatigue. And some of you have experienced that yourselves. It's a weird thing, isn't it? There can be no apparent medical basis for it, but absolutely life shaping. And so Nick had to organise his whole life, his family life, and his work life, and the business he ran, and involvement in church around the realities of his very limited capacity, energy, and all the rest. And so for Nearly 14 years that has been his reality. And then uh, Nick and Jill were recently at a gathering of churches, a conference, a bit like the one we had here a couple of weeks back. Nick was prayed for, as he has been prayed for many times, but suddenly instantly healed. And now, having to work out how to do life, not feeling exhausted the whole time, after 14 years of permanent chronic fatigue. It's a bit like this in Red Cat of Fish. The miraculous of the ordinary. That's amazing. And what we see, and I think in this, part of what we're meant to see in this big Catholic fish, is that there's an abundance. And we see that in a couple of the other signs. The first sign that Jesus performed was the turning of water into wine at Cana. And Jesus makes far too much wine, and the wine is far too good. It's a sign of God's abundance. And then the fourth of Jesus' signs, according to John, is when he feeds the 5,000. And again, there's a whole load of food left over. And what's that about? It's about this kind of abundance. Who is God? He's the one who can bring abundance. He's the one who can always do more than we ask for things. This year, our theme for the year here at Gateway has been multiplication. It's something what we see in these stories, that Jesus is the one who's able to multiply to us more than we ask or think. And so, because he is the one who's able to do that, and he's the one who's able to do that in the ordinary things of life, we need to keep letting down our nets. And just think what the Lord will do. Is he caught anything? Nothing. Let down your neck. Let's see what happens. This uh, story is a, it's a return to the ordinary moment. Jesus has died, Jesus has risen, but Peter and his friends go back to doing what they have always done. And again, there's been a lot of speculation about that. Was it somehow a lack of faith? Was it actually in some way sinful for Peter and his friends to go back fishing when Jesus is now raised and they had a mission to do. But I think what we see in this story is that there is nothing wrong with doing the ordinary stuff of life. But Jesus meets with people in the ordinary moments of life. This is their normal life. And Jesus met with them. And a miracle happens. And um, 
Of course, it was foretelling as well of, of what these disciples will do in the end. It mirrors another miracle fishing trip, not told us in the Gospel of John, but told us in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 5. But on this occasion, we're told that Peter and James and John have been out fishing all night and again have caught nothing. And Jesus turns up and says, let down your nets. And they let down the nets and they catch a huge pool of fish. And Jesus says to them, from now on you will be fishers of men. And so the 153 big fish they catch now is a sign of the greater harvest that is to come. It's an encouragement to us to keep on fishing. Been fifty one nights, caught nothing. Got what it feels like. Well, let down your nets. Let down your nets again and see what the Lord will do. It's meant to see how the Lord meets with us and works with us through the normal stuff of life. Jesus, Jesus meets with the disciples in the everyday ordinary of what they do, but it's His presence that makes the ordinary extraordinary. The presence of Jesus that turns a normal fishing trip into an extraordinary task. And then Jesus has breakfast ready for them. It's a very simple, very ordinary scene again. Breakfast on the beach. The discipleship moments often happen over meals. You see that if you read through the Bible, read through the Gospels, how often discipleship moments, moments where Jesus meets with people, helps people, talks to people. People realise stuff, have breakthroughs in their lives, happens over meals, and that happens here. And that's a reminder for us that we need to be eating together. We need to regularly eat together. And we have this weekly celebration of a meal. We come together and take communion. It's just a little, it doesn't feel much of a meal, but it's a symbol of a meal. But we sit down and we eat with one another and we eat with Jesus. When we take communion in a few moments, it's going to be the last time that we eat this meal this year. We'll be doing that in our towns this week. So as we come together, as we take the bread and the wine, let's come expecting Jesus to meet with us in the ordinariness of what we do, the regularity of what we do. As week by week, we take the bread and the wine and we come to Jesus, trusting Him that He can meet with us and He can work miracles. Verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very true, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciples in Jesus' love is following them. This is the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. If 
because of this, the rumors spread among the believers this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? This um, discipleship moment is a bit of a painful one. First in verse 17, that Jesus hurt Peter. Peter was hurt because of what Jesus said to him. And uh, that really cuts against the spirit of our age. That Jesus deliberately hurt Peter. Sometimes, in order to be healed, there has to be some hurt. If we're going to be whole, we have to let Jesus go deep. And if we take offense at the question which cuts to our heart, we're never going to be true disciples. Jesus hurts Peter, and he says to Peter, you need to follow me. Cuts deep into Peter's heart in order that Peter might truly be his disciple. And the question that he asks Peter repeatedly is a simple one, but a powerful one. Do you love me? Now, this is the most important question most important question for anyone in Christian leadership, which Peter is going to be, it's actually the most important question for all disciples. Do you love me? And the Lord gives Peter a very clear mandate as he asks this question and instruction. And there's three things I think we can apply from what Peter is told by Jesus. The first one is that pastors need to care for the flock. Jesus says, Please, my sheep care for my lambs. And the way that pastors do this primarily is through the ministry of the Word. By taking the words of Scripture, the words of Jesus, teaching them and applying them into the lives of the flock, the congregation, the church. And being faithful to that means there are times when we have to do as pastors what Jesus did to people. We have to do things which hurt people. Because that's what the Word does. Because it cuts the heart. Now that is challenging to do, and I think it's particularly challenging in our contemporary culture, in our contemporary therapeutic culture. Because if we don't get our understanding of what's finished, the stuff that's wrong with the world and with us, and if we don't get our idea of what salvation is, how what's wrong gets healed from Scripture, if rather we get our idea of what those things are from therapeutic categories, it's very difficult to faithfully apply the Word of God. Author Jake Meadow puts it like this, This is the effect of rendering therapists the new priests and of making pastoral leadership and discipleship virtually impossible because any attempt to actually encourage people in Christian discipline can be dismissed as potentially abusive or indicative of narcissism in the pastor. Now, the problem, of course, is that there are too many cases where pastors have been narcissistic and abusive. And where that happens, it needs to be called out and identified and dealt with. But the flip side of that is, if as a pastor, it becomes impossible to ask the kind of questions that Jesus did, because the say always renders you open to the accusation of being abusive or, or narcissistic. The question that the elders here at Gateway often ask ourselves is, 
doing what Jesus entrusted pastors to do. And to actually think about how we pastor people, sometimes pastors can become lazy. It's actually easier a lot of the time to send people to a therapist than it is to pastor people. Send you off, let somebody else deal with the problem. And here we're certainly not hostile in any way to therapy. A whole bunch of those on Relief 16 have done extensive therapy. Therapy can be very helpful. At times it can be very needed. But we mustn't lose sight of the fact that there are times when actually sitting down with a pastor and spending an hour reading scripture and praying, that might be the thing which actually you really need. That might be the thing you really need. And you know, if you come to me or John or one of the other elders here, one of the other pastors, and say, I need to spend an hour, a week with you praying and reading the Bible, we do that. And we don't even charge for it. The scripture we started this morning with, Psalm 103, Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. He satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. You see what that scripture says? That true soul health, genuine holistic health, only comes with forgiveness. And that only comes from the Lord. And the only way we know that is through God's Word and God's Word being applied to us. And so pastors must, I must, feed you to it. Even at times that means it hurts. That was Jesus' charge to Peter and it's his charge to us. second thing we can apply from this encounter is that we need to focus on what the Lord, focus on what the Lord has given you to do not from what he's given someone else to do. Jesus gives Peter a hint about how his life is going to go and what his death will be like. And Peter's first question is to turn around and look at John and say, what about him? And that's a very human tendency. If you've got children or if you've been a child with siblings and you've experienced it, it's such a natural human tendency. If you're a child, you always have this dynamic in family life. What about him? What about her? It's always the first question. Any, any kind of instruction, discipline comes, well, what about him? Go and tidy your room. What about her room? Get ready for school. What about her getting ready for school? Do your homework. Has he done his homework? How come he's got a bigger piece of cake than I have? It's always power, always it's a very human tendency. What about him? What about him? And as parents, we know the response, which is always, don't worry about him. This is about you. This is your room. This is your homework. That's his piece of cake. Shut up. And do it yourselves. It's the normal dynamic of family life. Happy Christmas. Why is his presence bigger than mine? We've got it all to come. It's wonderful. Having children at home for Christmas is such a gift. It's all about the it's all about the children. God bless your parents. <laughs> you need some therapy for that, yeah. But I need therapy for parenting. Seriously. Right. 
parenting her for this therapy to work. We're always living in the dangers of comparison and competition. Comparing what we have, what we're called to, where we are in life, with what they're doing, what they have. We're always prone to, to competition. You see, you see that, that, that dynamic seems to be clear, the way that this gospel is written there. There's, there's clearly this dynamic of competition between Peter and John. And it's usually John who gets there first. Usually John who gets there first. And he's the one, he's the disciple that Jesus loves. But in the end, it's Peter who is recognized as the senior apostle in the text. And so there's this dynamic of competition between them, and we see that here. And, and, and it's easy for us as Christians, as disciples, to get into some comparison and competition. What we need to do more is focus on our calling. Not competition, not comparison, but calling. What has God called you to? What has the Lord entrusted to you? Hey, so don't worry about John. This is about you and what I'm giving you to do. What, is, what has the Lord entrusted to you? What, what fear of activity, what responsibilities are uniquely yours in which he has entrusted you to your faith and responsibilities? Worry about that or about him. And then the third application of faith in this encounter is that we shouldn't worry about the end, but we need to get on with the now. What, what John does is he finishes his gospel to try and clear up some confusion in the early church. Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive and slow return, what is that for you? Because of what Jesus had said to Peter about John, there was this rumor that grew in the early church that Jesus would return before John died. And then, of course, after John did die, and that caused some trouble in the church because they thought that Jesus had said that he wasn't going to die until Jesus returned. And what the gospel does here is to clarify this with these words of Jesus. If I want him to remain alive, well, I could arrange that. But what's that to you? The point, Peter, the point, church, the point, Gateway Church, 10th of December 2023, is get on now with what I've given you to get on with now. Don't worry and speculate about what's to come. Don't worry and speculate about the future. But be faithful in doing the things I've given you to do now. I think what is being corrected here is actually symptomatic of, of many other end-time confusions in this church. Particularly over the last century, there has been a ridiculous amount of nonsense speculation. With people's charts and calculations. What do the 152 fifths mean? And what we need to do is get on with what God has given us to do now. And what we believe about the end is actually really important. We're planning a series of teaching next year where we're going to be looking specifically at this subject. But the main thing is to do what we've been given to do now. We are called to faithful discipleship now. Peter, don't worry about you. Don't worry about what he's got to do. Don't worry about what his future's going to be. Don't worry about how long he's going to live. Don't even speculate about when I'm returning. Just get on with what I've called you to do. As we come to the end of 2023 and roll in a couple of weeks into 2024, let's do the stuff that Jesus has given us to do today. Give us this day our daily bread. And so as we conclude this gospel, we need to apply it to ourselves in the way that John urges us to believe in Jesus.
keep on filling the world with the stories of what Christ has done. The way that John finishes, actually seems quite naive in a way. He says, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written if I told everything that Jesus has done. That seems a rather hyperbolic statement at that point when this gospel was written. But of course, in the 2,000 years since the gospel was written, so many more stories of what Jesus has done have been able to be told. And the world could not contain the books that were written. All our stories, all the stories of all those who have believed, the billions of people who have stories to tell about what Christ has done for them, the, the books that could be written are ever multiplying. And so, Gateway Church, let's believe and keep on believing and let's keep on filling the world with the stories of what Jesus Christ has done. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this wonderful gospel. We thank you, John's account. We thank you for all that we've seen in it and learned from it over these last seven months. And seven months of us being in this book, seven signs that the gospel describes. might believe and have life in the name of the Son of God. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the Messiah. Thank you that there is life in your name. Thank you that you're the one who works miracles in the ordinariness of our lives. And I pray, Jesus, as we come to the end of this series, as we come to the end of this year, that we would be faithful. We would follow you as you told Peter to do. We would be faithful disciples. We would allow you to do that hard work in us. At times, even if it's painful, in order that we might be more truly disciples, followers of Christ. Help us, Lord. Help us tell some stories. I pray this next couple of weeks, this Christmas season, help us tell stories about the Messiah, about the Son of God, about His coming. We love you, Jesus. We ask that question because you love me. Lord, I pray the answer from every heart. Now, from the